Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have the one and only Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital. Dear Lord, this was a masterclass in everything from investing to valuation to cycles to managing your own emotions. This is one of those podcasts that I guarantee you will listen to two or three or four times. My job was to just push Howard a little bit in one direction, and then stay the hell out of his way. He is so experienced, knowledgeable, smart, insightful, full of wisdom, charming, and and he also has a bit of a devilish sense of humor, which I don't know if you'll hear it, but in the things we discussed um, uh, off camera, so to speak, I, I, I just find his, his insights and his perspective delightful. I, I could go on at great length of all the things we discussed. I won't. I'm just going to say with no further ado, my 90 minutes with Howard Marks. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Howard Marks. He is the co-founder and chairman, co-chairman, co-chairman, of uh, Oak Tree Capital Management, and he has a long and storied history on Wall Street. Rather than go through all of the the details, we'll discuss it as we as we get to it. I am compelled to mention that Oak Tree's seventeen distressed debt funds have averaged nineteen percent after fees for the past twenty two years far outpacing its their peers. That's about as much of an intro as I think we really need. Let's jump right into this. Uh, I find your history really fascinating. You minored in Japanese studies. Ever plan on doing something besides finance? No, I never did. I was a Wharton kid. Mm-hmm. But it, at those days in the mid 60s, you were required to have a non-business minor mm-hmm. and also to have one semester of the literature of a foreign country. Really? Most people took English or French. For some reason I have no recollection of, I took Japanese (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I loved it. And so I turned that into my minor and I took 15 credits uh, in the graduate, uh, what was then called the Oriental Studies Department. And and you had always wanted to go into finance and I think that's reflected. You ended up uh, graduating from Wharton with a major in, in finance, an MBA from University of Chicago, and then you move over as an equity analyst at Citicorp, eventually you become the director of research there uh, before you find your way to the Trust Company of the West. And there you end up focusing on distressed debt, high-yield bonds, and convertible securities before you became their CIO for fixed income. How do you transition from equity analyst to fixed income analyst? Well, it was a real-life story, not a dream story. Um, 
as you say, I was director of research uh, for equities from 75 to 78. Uh, the bank was what was called the Nifty 50 investor. We've invested in the 50 best and fastest growing companies in America. And it was a disaster <laughs> because the official dictum was it didn't matter what price you paid. The prices paid were highly excessive. That corrected in the 70s. Mm -hmm. the, the, the investor in these great companies probably lost 80 to 90% of his money. Haven't, haven't we heard that expression it doesn't matter what price you pay, you just have to own this well, fill we, in the blank. Well, we do hear that, and of course, that's exactly the wrong thing to say. What I say is there's no such thing as a good idea or a bad idea in the investment world without reference to price. Mm -hmm. It's not what you buy, it's what you pay. Mm -hmm. And finally, investing is not a matter of buying good things, it's a matter of buying things well. And Meaning at, at the appropriate valuation. Right. And people, or less. <laughs> and, and people who don't know the difference shouldn't be in the business. Well, that, that seems to be um, an issue that comes up anyway, every 20 years. Anyway, the bank faltered with mm -hmm. his Nifty 50. They thought it would be great if they had somebody other than me as director of research. Uh, and uh, I asked my boss, uh, Peter Vermillier, uh, uh, what's, what's next? He said, I'd like you to start a convertible bond fund. Mm -hmm. So I moved over to the, to the bond department in May of 78, uh, started the fund in August. And in August, I got the phone call to change my life. Mm -hmm. My, uh, the head of the bond department said, there's some guy named Milken or something mm -hmm. in California and he deals with something called high yield bonds. And can you figure out what that is? A client had, had come in and asked for a high yield bond fund mm -hmm. and they asked me to be the manager and that, that put me in the right place at the right time. So it was a pure luck. Just serendipity, you, he yeah, happened to invest yeah. you and this client had come in with that issue. My only contribution, Barry, is that I was smart enough to say yes. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you on that a, a little later. So that leads to an interesting question. How did your experience with both being a, an equity analyst and the obvious problems with buy it at any price of the Nifty 50, how did that affect your approach to either high yield or subsequently distressed assets? Well, what I would say is number one, you learn nothing from success. Mm -hmm. You only learn from failure. You learn from experience. Experience is what you got when you didn't get what you wanted. Okay. And so, so the experience of buying top quality assets and losing 80, 90% was very instructive. Uh -huh. And it, it, uh, it, it, as I say, it convinced me that the key is the price you pay. Mm -hmm. Any There's no asset which is so good that it can't be overpriced. There are few assets which are so bad that they can't be underpriced. So when I switched into the high yield bond field that everybody thought was disreputable mm -hmm. and unseemly and non-fiduciary, and they called it junk, you know? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, maybe, maybe if it's so disparaged, maybe you can find a bargain. And in fact, that was the case. The, the the common thread between working in equities and working in high yield bonds or distress is that in, in most of the fixed income world, high grade fixed income, treasuries and that kind of thing, the only thing that matters is the direction of interest rates. Mm -hmm. Interest rates up, price down. Because everybody assumes there's no credit risk. Right. When you get down into high yield bonds and distressed debt, there is credit risk. I describe it as fixed income where what the company does matters. Mm -hmm. So you had better be able to judge the future of the company just like you do as an equity analyst. So it was really the right skill set applied to the right asset class. I, I'm still taken by the phrase uh, experience is what you get 
when you don't get what you want. Mm-hmm. Can, do do we credit you for that, or, or has that been around longer than you have? Well, I, I'm I'm too old to remember where I got it, <laughs> okay. so you may. <laughs> I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today really needs no introduction. He is Howard Marks. He is the co-chairman and co-founder of Oak Tree Capital, which is now a publicly traded company and has done extremely well for its long-term clients. Let's talk about what you're probably best known for, the chairman chairman's men, memos, which you put out every quarter, And I will quote no lesser an authority than Warren Buffett, who said, when I see memos from Howard Marks in my mail, they're the first thing I open and read. I always learn something new. But but that's today. And when you first began these a few decades ago, that really wasn't what the response was like. Tell us about what happened in the early, when did the memos begin? I started in 1990. Mm -hmm. I'm not, again, I don't exactly remember why. Uh, but I remember the events. I went to the Midwest. I met with the head of the pension fund of General Mills, Mm -hmm. and he explained to me that over the 14 years he had run the fund, he was never above the 27th percentile or below the 47th percentile. And as a result, solidly in the second quartile for 14 years, the funny math about in our business is if you can do that for 14 years, you end up in the fourth percentile for the entire 14-year period because most people who do well for a while shoot themselves in the foot. They're either top 10 or bottom 10. Exactly. So I was very impressed by that. And then I came home and uh, some famous value management firm had had a really tough time because they were heavy in the banks and the banks suffered terribly. And the president comes out and he says, well, you know, of course, if you want to be in the top 5% of money managers, you have to be willing to be in the bottom 5%. And that and was not correct. I, I said, how wrong can you be? I, I, My clients don't care if I'm in the top five and they're absolutely unwilling to be in the bottom five. I like the other approach where you're steadily just above the middle mm-hmm. and that puts you at the top for the long run. Second so, quartile over long periods of time leads to top 5%. If you never have that terrible year to pull you mm-hmm. down. So, so I published the first memo called The Route to Performance, 1990. Mm-hmm. The, the road to performance. Route, the route to the route. And the interesting question, what kept me going? Mm-hmm. Because as you say, I had the response was thundering. I never had a response for the first 10 years. I never had one response. I ne- nobody ever said good memo and nobody said I got it and I wrapped the fish in it. <laughs> I have to, I have to re- stop here and, and emphasize this. This is... Pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-email, you were literally spending time writing a memo, printing them out, folding them, addressing envelopes, stamping them, inserting paper into envelopes and taking them to the, they used to have this thing called the mail, um, the post office, and you could mail envelopes that way. So you're doing this for a decade and I might as well have thrown them in the drain because I never heard back. Not a, no, not a but call, of course, nothing. But of course, to hear back, somebody would have had to either write me a letter and put uh-huh. a stamp on it and put it in that thing called the post office or pick up the phone. And nobody did. So it's a solid. So the question that that naturally leads to is you have to be very self-motivated right. to express right. your views if you're sending this out to deafening silence. Right. And, and I... I was writing about stuff I believed in. Mm-hmm. And this was, it was quarterly then? Is that right? No, no, there was only one in 90 and one in 91. And 
and uh, then it started to pick up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I never did it with uh, uh, regularity in mind. And mm-hmm. by the way, during the crisis, I probably did 10 a year uh-huh. because there was so much to write about. Sure. Yeah. So that that's amazing. You kept going. And then something changed in 2000. On the first day of 2000, I wrote a memo called uh, Bubble.com mm-hmm. about the possible fragility of the tech bubble. Uh, and that had two virtues. Number one, it was right. And number two, it was right quick. It was timely, yes. So, because if you're right, but it takes three years to happen, they don't remember you. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's, there's, a, you, there's a saying years, in our business- that's not that, really right. Well, that's right. If, there's a saying in our business that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. <laughs> right. uh, but this was right quickly. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, say, I think I said in, in the introduction to my uh, book, that that made me, after 10 years, I became an overnight success. Right, that's right. And I remember that memo, Barron's picked it up yeah. and the Wall Street Journal picked it up. It, mm-hmm. it, it made the rounds yeah. and it was suddenly, that that's exactly right. Just it, like Playboy magazine at summer camp. Right, it, it made the rounds to say the least. So, so you don't recall what motivated you to start it. And aside from that dot-com memo, what the bubble.com, what other ones really are memorable and, and stay with you? I think two indicate the process for taking advantage of extremes of the cycle, mm-hmm. and which is very important to me. And in March of 07, I wrote a memo called The Race to the Bottom, mm-hmm. which talked about the fact that when investments are in short supply and people are in heat to make them, they will bid to an extent that that makes them bad investments. And then in, of course, then we had the crisis. And then in mid-October 08, which was the depths of the crisis, I wrote one called Current Developments. Um, and and another, well, maybe the better one, called uh, The Limits to Negativism, mm-hmm. in which I said, you know, uh, everybody knows that investing requires skepticism. And most of the time, skepticism consists of saying, no, 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 that's too good to be true. Mm-hmm. But in the depths of a crisis, skepticism requires you to say, no, that's too bad to be true. Mm-hmm. And people were telling such horror stories and nobody could imagine any assumption which could not be exceeded on the downside. And I said, hey, people are just being too pessimistic. We actually heard people say stocks are going to zero. Well, which... and, and the financial world is gonna melt down. And, and it, 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 you know, most of my, I, I don't think these things up in my head, uh, Barry, uh, most of these things stem from some externalities, experience. Mm-hmm. And so I had a meeting with the pension manager. I was trying to talk that pension fund into investing in uh, a, a levered loan fund, a fund of loans that was had leverage. Mm-hmm. And the levered return on the fund, senior loans, was in the 20s. I think 26%. And he looks at you like you're crazy. Well, not only that, but he said, well, what about if there are defaults? And every default scenario that I uh, uh, assumed, the CIO said, well, what if it's worse than that? What if it's worse? What if it's worse? And and, And eventually I ended up saying, do you have any equities in your pension fund? And the CIO says, yes. I said, well, then you better run out and sell them because the... What if the environment worse? you're pushing me to assume uh, everything is valueless. 
And so I ran back to my office and I wrote this memo, The Limits to Negativism, which says sometimes you got to say, no, it can't be that bad. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Howard Marks. He is the founder and co-chairman, co-founder really, uh, of Oak Tree Capital Management, which is now a publicly traded company specializing in distressed debt, uh, convertible securities, a whole run of different fixed income related investment. And let's talk a little bit about distressed debt. I look at the high yield market rates now, and, and they're as low as they've been since 2014, which is kind of surprising. What is that? What should we take from that? Well, Barry, people ask me, are we in a high yield bubble? And my answer is no, we're in a bond bubble. Generally speaking, across the board, across doesn't matter. Across the board. The central banks have pulled the interest rates so low mm-hmm. that you know, all the, the, the yields on all fixed income instruments are calibrated relative to each other. That's mm-hmm. why we have what's called a yield curve. Right. So if the maturity is longer, the yield is higher. If the quality is lower, the yield is higher. If the liquidity is lower, the yield is higher. But they all start from the base rate. And the central banks uh, said back in uh, 29 or 10, let's make the base rate zero mm-hmm. to get this economy going. And so the the incremental return you get for taking time risk, credit risk, illiquidity risk is still about the same as history, but mm-hmm. you are starting from such a low rate. So the yield on all bonds is extremely low, including high yield bonds. So you reference the Fed taking rates to zero. Should they not have done that? Should there have been a fiscal policy instead of a monetary policy? What, what options presented at that time? I think it would have been good to have, well, in fact, we, we, we did have some fiscal also. But relatively but not much. small, right. Uh, it would have been good to have some of that. The, the, you know, the, uh, we had, you know, deficit spending, the famous shovel-ready projects and right. that kind of thing. Uh, you know, would have been a good idea, were a good idea. But I think that the, that the monetary was essential. And, and I think that, you, you know, basically you can't quibble with, with results. Mm-hmm. We went through the worst financial crisis in 80 years mm-hmm. and we pulled out of it very quickly and here we are in 2017 and I would say for most people it is a distant memory. That That's true and especially when you look around the world if you that's look right. at Japan or Europe right. yeah. uh, if you don't like this economy well don't look overseas because exactly. we're by far the cleanest shirt in the hamper. So people that's a good one so people say to me d- d- you know how do you grade Geithner and Bernanke and, and Paulson and company on their handling of the crisis and I said, uh, you know, I don't know if I give them an A, but if you mark them on a curve, <laughs> they get an A plus because clearly far they did far the best job in the world, mm-hmm. and we are out of the crisis. Uh, we had we have had a, a modest recovery, but you know there are a lot of bad things that could have happened that right. didn't to to money market funds to commercial paper and so forth, and here we are. Uh, in in a very healthy environment. So uh, I don't quibble uh, with the people who pull us out of the crisis. And in fact, I think they did a hell of a good job. Uh, I would not have liked to have had that job at that time. I'll, I'll quibble a little bit and saying you can give Paulson the A+. Bernanke and Geithner were part of the team that helped yes, no, create the crisis, no, so you're right. I have to dock no, them a few it, points. But, but, it, but, <laughs> but it, it certainly is Paulson who gets uh, unmitigated credit. To, to say the least. Let's let's get back to um, distressed debt. And, and, and the issue you, you raise here, um, 
about us doing fairly well. I noticed that credit spreads are the favorite weapon of the perma bear. When they when they get too tight, the answer is well, investors are so complacent, and as soon as they start to widen, it's okay. Here comes the next disaster. What is going on with credit spreads, and and why is it used as that double-edged sword? Well, credit spreads are, are to some extent, an indicator of psychology. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, But, you know, uh, I don't believe in taking uh, my instructions from the market. Uh I put out a memo about a year ago um, as a result of a conversation I had here at Bloomberg where Mm -hmm. where people were, you know, remember the markets got off to a terrible start last year. January, yeah. And everybody was bugging me, you know, isn't that a sell signal? If the market's falling, is it a sell signal? As goes January. Right, so I ran back to my office again, and this time I wrote a memo entitled, What Does the Market Know? Mm -hmm. And I think it doesn't know much. But I, but I do think <laughs> I do think that the that the credit spread is an indicator of the values that are available. Uh-huh. And when when credit spreads are wide, that means for the benefit of your listeners that the interest on low grade bonds is much higher than it is on high grade bonds. Then I think you have substantial uh, uh, incentive to invest in low grade instruments. It also is an indicator of fear. Uh-huh. Uh, that's why spreads are wide. When spreads narrow, it means people are less afraid, as you say, more complacent, I would say more risk tolerant, and that the reward for bearing incremental risk is on the decline, which is not a, a good thing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital. Let's talk a little bit about volatility and uncertainty. You have a number of delightful quotes about the future. And one of my favorite is investing concerns exactly one thing, dealing with the future, yet it's clearly impossible to know anything about the future. You can't predict, you can only prepare. Discuss that. Well, everybody who wants to engage in investing has to reach a conclusion as to whether the future is predictable or not. Mm -hmm. If you believe it is, you'll behave one way. Mm -hmm. You will uh, reach a conclusion about what the future holds and put together the perfect portfolio for that eventuality. If you don't believe it, you will think about different possibilities and you'll put together a portfolio that will Mm sub-optimize, that will do well under many of them and not badly. And that's, that's a difference of, of approach. Uh-huh. I don't believe the future is predictable. You know, I, I'm from the uh, believers in what John Kenneth Galbraith said. He said, we have two kinds of forecasters, <laughs> the ones who don't know and the ones who don't know they don't know. Well, I know I don't know. And so uh, I try to put together portfolios that will do well in a variety of environments. But without trying to make a prediction about here's what's going to happen to interest exactly. rates. Here's what the exactly. Fed's going to do. Here's where's the recession. Exactly. So you can have a portfolio which is prepared for a variety of uh, eventualities without uh, insisting that any one of them is going to be the case. And, and that leads to another quote of yours. We can make excellent investment decisions on the basis of present observations with no need to make guesses about the future, essentially what you just said. That's right. You know, let me make clear one thing, Barry. It would be great if we knew what the future held. It's not like I don't care. 
we would be great investors if we knew what the market was going to do tomorrow and which stocks would do best. But if you reach the conclusion that you can't know, then you look for another avenue to deal with the future. And I'm in that category. And that's figuring out what's happening today exactly. and adjusting accordingly. So, so I do something I call take the temperature of the market. Okay. How, how does one take the temperature of the market? Well, In fact, when we look at the market today, let's talk about stocks. Yes. The VIX is pretty much as low as it gets for any extended period of time. Um, what does that tell about market risks? What does that tell us about the temperature of the sure. market? Well, you, you want to know what kind of thinking is being incorporated in investment decisions. Mm -hmm. If I was considering an investment, I could know only one fact. I'd like to know how much optimism is incorporated in the price. Mm -hmm. Because if there's a lot of optimism, then there's a lot of possibility of disappointment. Right. And, if, and if, the, if, if the truth turns out to be less good than the expectations, then the price will fall. If there's no optimism, as there was back in October of 08 at the depths of financial crisis, then I don't know, we can buy risky assets uh, aggressively mm -hmm. because there's no possibility of disappointment. Or the, the assumptions that are factored into the price are as negative as possible or more. And so, you know, Oak Tree invested extremely aggressively between uh, September 15th of 08, which was the day Lehman went under, right, and the end of the year. We invested over half a billion dollars a week. Wow. Uh, over that period. And that turned out to be- Mostly the, fixed income or was it a mix? Well, most of what we do is what we call credit, mm -hmm. you know, non-government fixed income. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, most of it was distressed debt. Um, so the point is, uh, the temperature of the market was frigid, mm -hmm. which meant there was no enthusiasm and we could uh, buy. You know, Buffett says, the less prudence with which others conduct their affairs, the greater the prudence with which we must conduct our own affairs, which means if other people are unworried, we should be terrified. Right. If other people are terrified, we should be aggressive. Mm -hmm. So- You've talked a lot about second degree thinking. I think a lot of people, if I were to ask them, if I could share with you one aspect uh, of a stock or a market, they would say, tell me valuation. You're taking that a step further and saying, tell me sentiment and what is already reflected in valuation. Right. So let's talk about second degree thinking. It, it's a, a phrase you've referred to repeatedly. Well, I actually call it second level. Thinking. Second level. Right. Um, I think in terms of degrees, because it's been so cold out, but um, what is second level thinking? Well, you, you agreed with me earlier when I said, if you think like everybody else, you'll take the same actions as everybody else. If you take the same actions as everybody else, you'll have the same results of everybody else. So, it, 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 and by the way, it seems mathematically unarguable. Right. Well, if that's true, then in order to be a superior investor, you have to ha think different mm -hmm. from everybody else. And uh, that, but different is not enough. You have to be different and right. So Di to some degree, this is Keynes's famous beauty contest. Yes, this is absolutely. Keynes uh, hypothesized a beauty contest in which the newspaper ran the pictures of 20 young women. It was a very chauvinist time. And 
And he offered a prize, or the newspaper offered a prize, to the reader whose entry, ranking the girls in terms of prettiness, was closest to the average entry. Mm-hmm. The first level thinker says, I'm going to figure out which girls are the prettiest. The second level thinker says, I'm going to figure out which girls the average reader will say are the prettiest. That's how you win the contest. Now, don't you run into the the next digression, which is the next person thinking, I'm going to think how the second level thinkers. At what right. point do investors start to outsmart themselves? Can you take that thinking too far? Yeah, well, you can go to third level and fourth level, but I think second level is good enough. You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you, when you get into the question of trying to figure out which girls the average reader is going to conclude the average reader is going to say the is the prettiest. It gets very complex, mm-hmm. and so it, with with the niceties, you have to uh, kind of factor in the realities of can you do it. Mm-hmm. So if you can merely come up with a better sense of value mm-hmm. and right price than others on a consistent basis, I think that's good enough. Without going to third and fourth levels. I I like the way that sounds. Let's talk a little bit about the opposite of um, trying to guess how other people are going to guess and bypass it and talk a little bit about the the shift towards passive investing and indexing. Some people have said, we don't want to try and guess what the best stock is or what other people are going to think what the best stock is, just buy the whole thing and and not worry about it. Well, and in fact, Barry, some people are observing that most people who try to do that don't do it well. Mm -hmm. And that the average uh, mutual fund doesn't add value. Mm -hmm. Well, it's obvious that on average, the average investor does average Mm -hmm. before fees and below average after fees and trading impact. So now there's a groundswell toward what's called passive uh, investing or indexation. You buy an index fund, you buy a fund that buys a little bit of everything. Uh, By the way, this theory was advanced 50 years ago when I started at the University of Chicago, so it's nothing new. It's a sign of how uh, thinking goes uh, that it took 50 years for it to take hold. Mm -hmm. But the point is John Bogle at Vanguard invented the index fund, I don't know, probably 30, 35 years. 1975. Yeah, okay, 40 years ago. And, it, and it's been creeping up, but the movement toward passive has become a groundswell in the last year or two because a lot of people are throwing in the towel. And basically, <clears throat> this stems from University of Chicago work on something called the efficient market right. hypothesis, which said that so many people are out there trying to make money in the market, and they're all intelligent, computer literate, with access to databases, highly motivated, objective, and clinical, and that that their efforts to find bargains and overpricings cause prices to converge with something called intrinsic value mm-hmm. so that there are no bargains. And if there are no bargains to be found or overpricings to be avoided, then you can't beat the market. That's the theory. We've been speaking with Howard Marks. He is the co-founder, co-chairman, and... Co-CIO, are you still co-CIO? Co-dishwasher. Co-dishwasher of Oak Tree Capital Management. Be sure and stick around where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue to talk about all things valuation. Uh, Be sure to check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, 
feedback and suggestions, write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not say you can find all of Howard's really delightful and and beautifully written memos at oaktreecapital.com or his book. We didn't even get to The Only Thing That Matters. Um, His book, uh, The Only Thing That Matters, The Most Important Thing. The Only Thing That Matters is the book, which is The Most Important Thing. And you can find that at Amazon or at fine bookstores near you. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved, and the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster. Welcome to the podcast. I don't know why I do this every time. Howard, thank you so much for doing this. I always find it delightful and instructional anytime we get to sit down. Someone said to me the other day, we, we were just in Toronto, uh, I guess before uh, winter at, at a, a CFA event, and someone said to me, you know, I, I, I've either listened to or seen you interview Howard multiple times. You've become the Howard Marks whisperer, and, and I, I, my response was, I'm pretty sure he doesn't need a whisperer. He's pretty uh, articulate on his own. Um, so let's keep talking about the market because there's so much stuff we didn't get to, and and so many things we we were last speaking about um, indexing. Bill Miller had a, a really fascinating quote. He he said the problem with active management isn't active management. The problem with active management is most of those managers are essentially high-cost closet indexers. Um, what do you think of something like that? Well, I do think that most people tend, for maybe career purposes, mm-hmm. to hug the benchmark. Sure. And to have a portfolio which is not very different from the benchmark, in which case you're wasting your money by paying him or her fees. You can get the benchmark for probably uh, six, basis six basis points. That's six hundredths of a percent. Right. And active managers probably get close to a percent. It, it, on average, it, yeah. I think those numbers are about right. Okay, so that means the average manager is charging uh, 84, 94 basis points more, which is a straight subtraction from the performance of their funds. And if they don't add at least 94 basis points uh, to the return per year, you might as well go into an index. And and that was his point. He said if you want to do active, then really do active. Don't waste your time with with closet. Well, that goes to what I mentioned before, my memo, Dare to be Great. Dare to be great. In order to outperform, you have to dare to be different from the index, mm -hmm. which means you have to dare to be wrong. You have to be willing to either accept a drawdown or – a significant underperformance in any given year. Exactly. There is no, the interesting thing about investing is that there is no approach which is guaranteed to work. There can't be, given the nature of markets. Nature's, markets abhor certainty. Right. And I'm so glad you said that because this has been a peeve of mine forever because you, I want to repeat what you said. Markets abhor certainty. Every time I flick on the TV, some 
clueless pundit is saying markets hate uncertainty. And if you think back, the only time there's certainty is at extreme tops or extreme bottoms. 2000, when you did the dot-com bubble in, in January of 2000, markets were sure, they were certain, valuations didn't matter, trees grow to the sky, everybody loves it. And back in 09, March 09, markets are going to zero. There is no value that is cheap enough. It's all terrible. So I like your quote better. Markets abhor certainty. Well, I, you know, maybe, Barry, I should rephrase. No, no, I'm, I'm, you're stuck with that one. I'm keeping okay. that one. How, how would you want to rephrase that? Because well, that's pithy and I think perfect. That, I think that investors like certainty. Okay. It's just that it's usually wrong. And wrongest at the extremes. Okay, that's a that's a good. Uh, it's, it's less of a soundbite. It's less of a soundbite, but it explains exactly markets of poor certainty because investors, listen, if you're comfortable, then it's probably not a lot of outperformance because that's right. to get to that point, you have to do something that is intuitively uncomfortable and 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 countervailing to what the crowd is doing. Well, Dave Swenson, who runs the endowment at Yale, which has been a Top great- Top performing endowment for decades. For He's been doing it for 30 years and he has great, great results. He said in his book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, uh -huh. that that investment management requires the, at the maintenance of uncomfortably idiosyncratic positions, mm -hmm. which in the light of so-called common sense or conventional wisdom, appear uh, irrational. Mm -hmm. In other words, what everybody believes, common sense, right. common wisdom, is, fa is factored into the price of the stock. If you're going to find a bargain, you have to find the times when consensus is wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to diverge from consensus, which can, can only be uncomfortable. Makes sense. Yeah. You have to be idiosyncratic, and people will look at you and you say, who is that nut selling out of his tech stocks in the first quarter of 2000? Which raises a question. You're not just in an ivory tower penning notes and right. sending them out and sure. not caring if people are responding. You're, well, Oak Tree is now running 40? 100. 40, 100. No, 100. 100, 100 billion. Yes. In 2000, you guys were still running well, in tens 2000, of billions. Yes. Of dollars, so you have real clients yeah. with real assets at risk, real money at risk, and their jobs on the line because your clients are primarily institutional. Right. How do you handle when uh, something looks idiosyncratic? Mm -hmm. People say, "All right, Howard has finally gone off the deep end this time," mm -hmm. and the phones start lighting up in the office. Hey, what are you guys doing? Sure. Uh, how do you manage that as a, as a as a company, how does the organization handle that? Well, I think one of the money manager's most important jobs is client education. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we've convinced our clients by now that you have to be contrarian and you have to look wrong for a while and, 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 and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's our job to hold their hands when we do extreme things. You know, I wrote this memo, uh, Current Developments, back uh, October the 8th of 08, uh -huh. probably the low point of credit. And I mentioned that I was talking to a reporter at that time. He said, what are you doing? I said, we're buying. He said to me, you are? <laughs> like that, with an exclamation point. Well, everybody uh, else he spoke to was selling. That's right. And, and uh, 
And so when everybody, if there are 100 money managers and 99 are selling, what do you want to do? Do you want to buy or sell? You want to be the... You. Well, actually, the answer is most of the time the crowd is right. It's at those extremes That's right. where I want to be on the opposite right. side of but, that trade. But only at the extremes are 99 out of 100 selling. Right. That's right. And and if 99 of 100 selling, then there must be no optimism in prices. Prices cannot be high relative to intrinsic value. Right. You can't lose by buying. So what about the process? We've seen this happen over and over again with especially with value stocks. I assume it's similar with distressed assets or anything credit related, which is just because something is cheap doesn't mean it, it's not going to get cheaper. There's, there's a famous quote, um, David Einhorn said, a stock that's down 90% is a stock that was down 80% before it got cut in half. <laughs> so how do you know, I love that line, yep. how do you know when uh, you're early, you're, ne you're not necessarily going to tick the bottom you're prepared to buy something and keep buying it as it continues to fall out of bed? You never know when you're at the bottom. Mm -hmm. It is logically impossible because what is the bottom? The bottom is the price below which things never went. Mm -hmm. You went, that's a past tense word. Right. You can only assess the bottom in the past tense. So if you can't find the bottom, what can you do? You can buy that, that smile at the, the bottom of the Well, curve. what I would say, you can buy when it's cheap. Mm -hmm. That's all you can do. Even if it's quote unquote early. Even if it's early, because you don't know if you're early or not. But if you're, if you're really no value, mm -hmm. then you know when things are cheap. So and let's, that, by the way, and, and you have to bear in mind, everybody who wants to be a successful investor has to bear in mind that cheap and going up tomorrow are, are not things. synonymous. Right. Very different. And things. so if you buy because it's cheap, it goes down. You buy more. It's still cheap, you keep buying. No, it's cheaper. <laughs> okay. It goes down more, you buy more. If you liked it at nine, you're gonna love it at, at eight and at seven. And then you run out of money and you raise more money. Really? And you keep doing it, but eventually you have to be proved right. So at what at what point does um well that's me buzzing at what point do you say to yourselves I'm out of money I need more capital and you go back to the client base what what do they say in response to that well sometimes they say you know we have faith in you here's some more money and sometimes uh -huh. they say you know you're obviously a moron. Uh, no do they more. actually say that to you? Well, not that word, mm -hmm. but I mean, there. Like I described that that experience in October '08 when right. I went out to get people to invest in a levered. You raised a lot of money for that fund, didn't you? Well, not the levered loan fund. Uh, we reached a point where, on the levered loan fund, we where we we needed money and we couldn't get the clients to put it up anymore. Really, we had a shortfall. Uh, the irony is, I felt that it was my responsibility, and I put it up myself. Your own cash because the clients didn't. The last dollars. I, it would have been unfair if I would have stepped in front of them and put my money in you at the, the bottom last, in nothing. place of them. Right. But if they refused, I put it in. It was one of the great investments I ever made. What were the returns of that from 08? Well, certainly more than 100%. Really? Yeah. Not too bad. Not too bad. But the, but the point is, um, the degree of faith in you that your clients have tells you 
how long they'll stick with you when things go tough. That makes sense. But every client is probably going to reach a point where he says, I'm out of money. I'm fatigued. Go away. I, I love you, but, <laughs> you know, maybe you're not right. Mm -hmm. You, I recall you were raising one of the distressed funds. I don't remember if it was in the housing bust in 06, 07, or but it was a substantial, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, substantial mm -hmm. funds yeah. uh, that did really well. Which, yeah. which fund am I thinking well, of? Well, uh, uh, on the... We had a we had a very big fund in 0102, which mm -hmm. did very well because we were able to invest in the telecom meltdown and the scandals of Enron and right. Delphi and WorldCom. Uh, the market snapped back in 03. We raised small funds in 04, 05, and no fund in 06. On the first day of 07, we went out and we said to clients, you know, we think we can use three billion. Three billion. And within a month, we had eight. Oh really? And we said to the clients. So you really have trained your clients well. Well, well educated hopefully, them. Educated, and and uh, and we said to them, we can't use eight. We'll take three and a half. We closed that fund. We said, but we'd like to have the rest of your interest in a standby fund. Mm -hmm. So the first fund, three and a half billion, was seven, and uh, we we said we'd like to have money for seven B, mm -hmm. and we started. We had the first close of that in March '07. We had the last close in March '08. And by that time, it was $11 billion. Um, and we told people it's a standby fund. We're not going to spend it until the time is right. We're not going to charge any fees until we're into the investment process. Mm -hmm. So from March 07 until June 08, we didn't charge any fees. June 08, we started to spend the money very gradually. Uh, the June 08, so that's fairly yeah. early in the Well, in the that's class. right. And, and uh, Lehman went bankrupt on September... 15th, we were 12% called. Mm -hmm. By the end of the year, we were 70% called. So pretty fully invested so we, after So the... we called 58% of 11 billion, which is six and a half billion, mm -hmm. over 15 weeks. That's all you had to do. You know, all you had to do to make money in the crisis, in retrospect, right. was have money to spend and the nerve to spend it. Mm -hmm. You didn't need caution, conservatism, risk control, patience, selectivity, discipline, any of those things. All you needed was money and nerve. Money and nerve. And, and Money and nerve capital is a new, uh, <laughs> new hedge fund coming out. And, and, uh, but not all the time, because sometime money and nerve will get you killed. Right. And, and one of Most the, of the time. Well, and money, and so one of the keys in investing is to know which is which. Mm -hmm. that, that's, really, that's really fascinating. Um, there's another quote of yours that's relevant to exactly what you just said. I have to bring up. Uh, rule number one, most things will prove to be cyclical. Rule number two, some of the greatest opportunities for gain and loss come when other people forget rule number one. Why is it that people do not understand that this too shall pass, that it's well, all cyclical? Because of the rule of emotion rather than logic. Mm -hmm. um, emotion is a great enemy of all investors. Sure. Um, back in 1975, probably, 42 years ago, I learned one of the greatest lessons. Somebody said to me, there are three stages to a bull market. The first stage, when a few bright people believe that there could be improvement. The second stage, when most people understand that things are actually getting better. Mm -hmm. And the third stage, when every idiot believes that things can only get better forever. <laughs> and so so where are we today? It's, it's February 2017. You know, Barry, I don't believe that most people are thinking 
very optimistically. Mm -hmm. I think most people have reservations. Most people understand that economic growth is uncertain. Most people understand that we don't know how the central bank experiment with zero rates is going to end up or how it gets reversed. And of course, most people are concerned about the geopolitical developments in the world today. Mm -hmm. So I believe that enthusiasm is not unrestrained. It's tempered? Is that a fair? I believe it's tempered. On the other hand, people may be, may be thinking in not a bullish way, but I think they're acting in a bullish way. What accounts for the difference? Rates near zero. Mm -hmm. And when you live in a low return world, you have to take risk to get return. People are willing to take risk because my late father-in-law would call them handcuffed volunteers. Okay. People who do things not because they want to, but because they have to. They have no choice. That's there right. Is no, there is, Tina, there is there no, is alternative. no alternative. And so people are taking more risk than they used to take to get the returns they used to get. At one point in time, um, I recall in the early 2000s, the rule of thumb for, for foundations and endowments and any charity to maintain their tax-deferred status is they're giving out 5% a year. Yes. And that's a pretty easy bogey to hit most of the time. But when you have you know rates uh, rising rapidly and stocks not doing especially well, that becomes a real challenge to hit. We saw that in the, in the uh, early to mid-2000s. Absolutely. How much of what takes place, in direct reference to what you were just saying, comes from foundations having no alternative, comes from endowments, charities, all, all the big nonprofits having to hit that 5% bogey because they're so loath to go into the corpus of, of their trust. How much of that handcuffed um, volunteers comes from that segment of the investing world? Well, I think a, 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 a good bit, although foundations and endowments are not a large proportion of the money, mm -hmm. uh, but the same is true of pension funds. You know, uh, uh, the, the management of a company puts in an amount of money and then that amount of money is supposed to be invested and grown so that by the end or so by the, in the future, there'll be enough money to pay pensions. And the connection between today's dollars and the number and the dollars you need in the future to pay pensions is called the actuarial assumption. Mm -hmm. The rate you need to make the math work. And for a long time, that was eight. As uh -huh. you say, now most, in the interest of conservatism, most pension funds have switched to seven and a half. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, that, that, that the five-year T-bill, Treasury note, used to pay six and a half percent. So how hard is it to make eight at that point? That and today it pays one and a half. Now it's harder. And stocks used to, stocks returned 20% in the 90s, and it was assumed that they would return at least 11 forever. And today it's assumed that they'll pay, they'll make five or six. So if, if the prospective returns have come down so drastically and the expectations of institutional investors have not, mm -hmm. then I think that they all have a real challenge. So I don't know if you can really talk about state pension funds, but they seem to be somewhat underfunded and wed to these high return expectations. What does this tell us about the future obligations that taxpayers may find themselves on the hook for? That's really one of the great questions today, Barry, that very few people are talking about. Uh, but the pension 
the 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 uh, state or municipality puts in a certain amount of money, mm-hmm. and then it assumes a, a rate of return, which will enable it to pay. But uh, I've noticed if you assume a higher rate of return, you have less money you have well, to that's put right. in today. That's right. But more money down the road, and appreciably more. What that assumption should be, mm-hmm. and what I think it used to be, is what we can make. Now I think more often it's what we need. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's not right. It should be what they can make, and what you can make in this low return environment has come down quite a bit. Regardless of the assumed rates being too high, lots of funds are underfunded anyway. Re- regardless, yeah, no matter I, what it that's is. That's right. And and uh, In other words, they, if you ratchet down your return expectations, then you're even, even more underfunded. That's right. I think that most public funds are woefully underfunded. And uh, many of them are working with their unions to renegotiate the pensions uh-huh. so that the, that, so that the uh, funds can be returned to viability. Uh, in, in some cases, you can't do it, like in Illinois, where the pension fund is a right that's guaranteed in the Constitution, and you can't play with pensions. Can't mess with it. So it's unknowable how these funds will deal with the future. You look at Illinois. It's a mess. It just doesn't seem that it's possible for insolvency to be avoided. Really? Yes. For the the state or for the individual pension funds? Mm -hmm. You know, well, it requires... Is the state on the hook to make make up the shortfall? Yes, it is, because because it's a constitutional right. So if that's the case, does the state, is the state looking at either a renegotiation or a default? Well, it it, it, it may do. We've had some small municipal bankruptcies around the Here country. Here and there, sure. Yes. Um, Stockton was Stockton, one. Stockton, for good memory. Um, but, you know, good no, point going, nobody wants to uh, experience these things until they have to. Mm-hmm. Nobody says, you know, if we go on this track, we're going to be broke in 10 years, so that's X, Y, Z, unless they have to. What's the uh, famous Hemingway quote? It was uh, very gradual and, and until it was very sudden at the well, end. Well, I, I, I don't know that Gatsby, one, but I or, take your word for it. Uh-huh. How did uh, he go bankrupt? It was very gradual. But, and you know, then, but there is no provision for state bankruptcies in the bankruptcy code. What about uh, 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 a territory like Puerto Rico? There was no provision for bankruptcy. That was one of the challenges in resolving that issue, and it had to be done consensually. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that... Uh, you know, if you look at the math, you look at the funding status, and you look at the assumed returns, a lot of public pension funds are going to have big problems down the road, and I'm not talking about the 22nd uh, century. Uh, and You mean the, a decade or so from, from here? I, I'm not an expert on the numbers, mm-hmm. but I believe that it's more imminent than infinite. Mm-hmm. And... I, I just don't think that uh, that the average citizen uh, understands the risk. And you know, what's let's say that we did begin to have uh, states going under. Would the federal government bail them out? Depends on who's running the government at that That's time. That's right. And by the way, if you look at the states which are uh, most troubled, mm-hmm. you'll find out that that uh, that 
New Many Jersey, Illinois. Who else is on that that short list? Well, I don't. I I don't. I shouldn't really go into depth okay. where where I'm ab- above my depth. Ca- California but, has seemed to get its fiscal house in order. Well, I think they're on the way. They've taken some steps. Mm-hmm. But the point is, I think that that uh, uh, you know the the expectation that that the states will be bailed out by the federal government, which which means transferring money. I mean, the, the federal government has no money. It is not a money-making organization. It is only an intermediary. Right. It collects money and it gives it out. And it and, print, prints a little on the side. Well, prints a little. But I mean, but it doesn't earn any money. It, mm-hmm. It's not like you and me going to work in the morning. Right. And, and so... More you than me. So the, <laughs> the, the federal government redistributes money amongst the states. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to see a massive trend of taking money from the states that have been uh, economical and prudent mm-hmm. and giving it out to the ones that have been profligate. Mm-hmm. So that complicates matters. And uh, I just think that the uh, precarious state of, of public pension funds is an issue that has received very little attention, uh, but will get more in the future in, in the coming years i, I want to jump to my favorite questions but before i do i have to reference something you described um i believe it was at the cfa event in toronto which for lack of a better phrase is is called organizational alpha you were describing the way your firm more than just asset selection the way your firm processes information and creates a mechanism for identifying opportunities for investment. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. You referenced some of your colleagues. You referenced Bruce Kovner. Karsh. Uh, Bruce Karsh. Yes. Bruce Kovner, different person. Um, the other gentleman. Sheldon were, Stone. Sheldon. And, and who else uh, are, are running different portfolios in the well, office? John Brady runs the real estate, and Matt Wilson and Jordan Cruz run the control funds. Caleb Kramer runs the European control funds. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of strategies. We have a lot of uh, great guys running them, and, and, and even some women. And so you, um, which is which is relatively rare these days in, in institutional asset management, but that's starting to change. Um, so you are co-chairman, co-CIO, is that correct? No, I'm co-chairman and co-founder. Co-founder. You were CIO for a while. Uh, or no, I was never CIO. Really? I'm misremembering that. Edit that out. That, we'll, we'll we'll leave that in. Um, so how so where I'm where I'm getting to with this is how is the decision making process mm-hmm. about where to allocate capital, how aggressively to portion, how are those decisions actually made? Sure. Well, number one, for the most part, Barry, we don't allocate capital. Mm-hmm. Clients, institutional clients, don't go to a firm like Oak Tree and say, "Here's a hundred million dollars. Do what you think is right." Right. They go into a specific. They go into fund? a specific fund or strategy. Mm-hmm. So we don't have the allocation decision. Our job is to manage the money within the assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, when you use the term organizational alpha, which I think is a good one, alpha means personal skill, the the ability to add value above what the market gives in any given niche. Mm-hmm. Where does it come from? And the answer I think is it's, it's personal or it's organizational. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Personal means hiring, hiring great people, and of course we try to do that. But organizationally, I think that you can be constructive or destructive. We have a very explicit investment philosophy which tells everybody who works at Oak Tree what our game plan is and how we're gonna go about adding value for the clients. An emphasis on risk control mm-hmm. and on consistency, not on top decile, bottom decile, and insistence that we will only be active in inefficient markets, and a desire for a high degree of specialization. We don't have a general research pool. We have research teams assigned to every strategy. Mm-hmm. We have a refusal to base investment decisions on macro forecasts, which shouldn't come as a surprise to you, and a reluctance to raise and lower cash to time the markets, which we think is very difficult to do most Mm -hmm. of the time. So everybody knows the game plan. We think it's an effective um, uh, game plan, uh, especially that everybody knows that the way to succeed at Oak Tree is not by being some cowboy and swinging for the fences, but rather to to control the risk and drive out the negative surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the investment philosophy gives everybody a, a creed to live by and a way to pull together. And we don't have, you know, I've seen investment organizations torn apart by by battles between the, the cowboys and the chickens. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the good markets, the, the cowboys say the chickens are holding us back, and in the bad markets, the chickens say the cowboys are getting us killed. And it's very bad. Uh, it's also bad for the clients. Uh-huh. Our clients want to know what kind of an organization they're hiring, and then they want to get what they came for. And an explicit creed, like we have, enables that to be the case. So I think that that the, the, uh, the, the common creed, the investment philosophy, is extremely important. Then the other thing is that at Oak Tree, we have a structure which is designed to encourage team behavior, mm-hmm. not individual behavior. Uh, so nobody at Oak Tree, you know, we don't have the philosophy that, that exists in some places, you eat what you kill. Uh, you know, everybody gets paid on their own performance and you can quantify it down to the basis point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get paid uh, at, at Oak Tree on how the team did, how the firm did, how the team did, what we believe of your contribution and your potential. We don't keep records of who gave which recommendation and how much money did it make us or lose it. We don't pay people based on their quantitative results in the prior year because quantification isn't everything and the prior year isn't everything. You know, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, Albert Einstein said, not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. Mm-hmm. There is so much more in assessing the contribution of an individual to the performance of the team and the organization than just whether his recommendations worked last year, uh, that we uh, insist on uh an organization that functions as a team for the benefit of the clients. And it sounds like it's certainly been working over the years. Let, let's jump to some of our favorite questions while I, while I still have you. You mentioned some folks who influenced you at City. Who, who were some of your early mentors? I don't really have 
the mentors mm -hmm. to talk about. My uh, philosophy was shaped mostly by reading. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so who who affected you? Well, I mentioned John Kenneth Galbraith earlier, For sure. and I think he was terrific. And mm -hmm. he talked about the fact that forecasts don't work, and he talked about um, the uh, the fact that uh, people in the financial world have very short memories, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why cycles tend to repeat. Uh, he, he, there's a great book called A Short History of Financial Euphoria, mm -hmm. uh, which talked about. Uh, the extremes of cycles. And that was very impactful on me. I read that one a long time ago. Galbraith, uh, what, what other books have you read <coughs> that have been very influential to your philosophy? Uh, Fooled by Randomness by mm -hmm. Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about the fact that the future is indeterminate and uh, that uh, e events are unpredictable in large part because the world is subject to randomness. Mm -hmm. And in a world of randomness, you can't have events that are predictable. And, and, and I think he makes very, very sound arguments uh, on that subject. So there's another example. Uh, Against the Gods by, oh. by Peter Bernstein. One of the uh, best. On the subject of, of, uh, of uh, probability and risk um, and, uh, and so forth. I, um, not too long ago, had Meyer Statman in here, and he said one of his early advisors was Peter Bernstein. Yeah demanding guy, yeah. but he said whatever yeah. he worked with on him sure. was so much better when it was done. And you know, I so I wrote a memo called Risk in 06 mm -hmm. and updated it, Risk Revisited in 14. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then in 15, I found a memo from Bernstein on my desk, an 07 uh, memo from Bernstein who had passed away in 09. Mm -hmm. And it was entitled, Can Risk Be Reduced to a Number? Mm-hmm. He didn't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that risk can be quantified. I think it's just a matter of subjective judgment. I, and, and, and it had a profound influence on me, as he did in general. His, his writing was just so dense with thought right. and so clearly structured. And his prose was, I, I find anytime I sit down, um, I have his book on gold Mm -hmm. on my desk yeah. and I'm I'm looking forward to diving into any of the books you want to mention you you previously mentioned Graham and Dodd is there anything else you want to reference uh what what are you reading now I'm reading Tim Geithner's autobiography Oh really Stress Test And how is that It's very interesting Really It's uh it's uh it's not uh exciting reading right. it's not fun reading but it's very very illuminating Oh you, you get a lot of insight as to what was going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. I have not read either Bernanke or Paulson's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, autobiographies, but they are sitting yeah. on my shelf, and I'm just, one of these days, I, I feel obligated to get to them. Well, I think we should, because if we don't study crises, mm -hmm. then we are bound to repeat them quicker. Mm -hmm. If we study them, It'll take longer. Of course, they'll always repeat. They'll come back. But you know, it was, it was Santayana who said, "Those are those who are ignorant of history are bound to repeat it." Right. And and uh, reading the books of people like Paulson uh, will help us uh, to delay their repetition. Mm -hmm. What do you What do you do uh, outside of the office to relax? What do you do for fun? Well, I read. Okay. And uh, I uh, play some tennis. 
Mm-hmm. And I uh, like houses mm-hmm. and architecture. You like architecture? Yes. Yes. I had no idea about yes. that. What do you do? How does that express itself? Do you go on architectural tours? I'm assuming you've been to Oak Brook and done the whole I, I do Frank visit, Lloyd, right? I do visit uh, uh, standout examples of architecture. Mm-hmm. You know, and the great thing about <clears throat> is that when you go on a business trip, right, you can find the best one or two examples. Always. And, and, and you can go visit them. It doesn't take very long. You're kind of bi-coastal. You're in L.A. part of the year. You, yes. So you have plenty of Frank Gehry buildings and other such well, stuff. Well, your, your references are to modern. Mm-hmm. I didn't say modern. I Okay, I, I, that I, is my I, bias I, coming no, out. I actually prefer classical architecture. Uh, okay, and, such such as? Well, uh, I mentioned Frank when, Lloyd when Wright. You go to, when you go to Berlin, you should visit Potsdam. Mm-hmm. Potsdam has great examples of, of 18th century architecture. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and uh, you know when you go to uh, uh, when you're down south, you should go to Mount Vernon mm-hmm. and uh, Monticello and okay. so forth. Um, and uh, it's really a highlight to be able to take a little bit out of your day uh-huh. to go see a great building. That's fascinating. I, I had no idea. Um, you you occasionally uh, bump into a millennial or a recent college grad. What sort of advice do you give to? St- a, a young person just starting their career, if they said, hey, I'm interested in finance, uh, what advice would you give them? I think the most important thing, Barry, <clears throat> is that, you know, when I got out of grad school, I applied for six different jobs in six, six different fields mm-hmm. of finance. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, I went into investment management primarily because I had had a good summer job at Citibank in 1968, and I right. enjoyed it. Uh, and all those jobs offered about the same pay. They all offered between twelve and $14,000, right. and that was a year, not a month. And then sometime in the 80s, God looked down, and he said, I'm going to let those people who manage money make more than everybody else. Okay. And <laughs> so there's a tendency for people to go into investment management, hedge fund management in mm-hmm. particular, because they want to get rich. It's not a good reason. And what I always counsel <clears throat> young people is that they should try to find something that they will enjoy. And if you're doing something every day for your life, which is hopefully a long time, and you're not enjoying it, then you're wasting your life. Mm-hmm. And, and doing that to pile up money that you'll have left at the end it seems so uh, futile. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Christopher Morley, uh, you're a great one for quotes. Christopher Morley, the English writer, uh, said my favorite one. He said, there's only one success, to be able to live your life your own way. And so what that means is, number one, to follow the convention of society mm-hmm. into whatever all the cool kids think is great at a given point in time is is an obvious mistake. You should not let society set your goals. <clears throat> and number two, uh, the, the challenge is really, in my opinion, to figure out what will make you happy mm-hmm. and then to pursue it. Uh, but that's what I tell people. Try to do something you'll love. Uh, there's nothing like spending your day uh, doing something you love. 
you know, I always say to people that investment management is great. I would do it for nothing if I, if I had to. Fortunately, I don't have to. Uh, <laughs> my, but, my wife says I'm gainfully <clears throat> unemployed, which, which is pretty much exactly what, what you're saying. Well, there's, you know, we only get one life. You get to be my age. You're getting there one of these days, but at my Hopefully. age, you realize that it's not finite. My wife says none of us is getting out of this alive. Right, that's uh, right. So y- y- the only thing that makes sense is to try to uh, maximize our satisfaction with our lives. Mm-hmm. You get to be 70, 80, 90 years old, you look back, you say, damn, I should have X, Y, Z. It's unfixable. Right. That's what you must think about. What will I think? How will I feel about my life at the end? And you have to behave in accordance to not having regret at, That's right. at, at the end. And, and, and from what I'm told, very few people say, I should have spent more time at the office. <laughs> very few. Um, and our final question, what is it that you know about investing in any of its guises that you wish you knew when you began low back in the 1960s, 1970s? Sure. Well, I think that that I, you know I've learned a lot of lessons through experience, as we discussed, getting what you didn't want. That's right, and and uh, you know those are the things that have shaped my philosophy to be what it is today. The the futility of trying to guess the future, mm-hmm. the importance of understanding cycles, the essential character of value. Uh-huh. That it's not what you buy, it's what you pay. Mm-hmm. Um, the essential character of value. value. Yes. I mean, the relationship between price and value determines your success. Not buying high-quality assets, uh, not shunning low-quality assets, but buying assets of of any quality when they're available cheaper than they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that the, these are the kinds of th- the, the, the the importance of controlling emotion, the importance of contrarianism. In fact, I got great news, Barry. Okay. My book, The Most Important Thing, has 20 chapters. And each chapter says the most important thing is, and then it's a different thing. And I've tried to distill the important lessons of my career into that book. And uh, and uh, I'm, I'm satisfied with the job I've done. And, and as have everybody who's read the book, I can't recommend it enough. Um, the blurb on the cover is Warren Buffett. Uh, who is essentially the person who you tell a lovely story about him saying, why don't you write a book, Howard? That's right. He's, he, he wrote me. I always figured that when I retired, I would pull the memos together into a coherent uh, mm-hmm. book. And uh, in 2010, I got a, uh, an email from Warren, and he said, if you'll write a book, I'll give you a blurb for the jacket. And that was all the motivation I needed to get going. And uh, and the book came out a year later. And and by the way, I love the fact that Warren Buffett says, "You know who I'd like to read a book from? That Howard Marks guy. Send him an email telling him I'll give him a blurb, and a year later I'll get a book from him." Well, I mean, the amazing thing is, <laughs> the amazing thing is that somebody like Warren, uh, despite the uh, respect he enjoys and the success he has enjoyed, is still reading. He's and, a, voci- and, a a a yeah. vociferous reader. And by the way, he doesn't read. His own writing, mm-hmm. he reads from other people, and 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 gleans what is to be gotten, and uh, you know he's eighty-seven, I think. Mm-hmm. He's not done learning. 
he just said, if you've seen the HBO documentary on him, it's fascinating. He describes himself as, he goes, I'm just a cigar butt. There's nothing left anymore. <laughs> but he still goes to the office, yeah. him and Charlie Munger. Munger is 90-something. 92. And they read three or four hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. That's just astonishing. Howard, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's always a delight, uh, an instructional one, chatting with you. We've been speaking with Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital. Be sure to go to oaktreecapital.com. You can see the entire collection of uh, Chairman's Memos. Each one is a lesson in itself. The most important thing at Amazon and fine bookstores near you. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other, I want to say we're coming up on 140, 130 such conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank Medina, our recording engineer, Taylor Riggs, our booker, Michael Batnick, our head of research. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org.